Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning. I think I left my voice at home <laughs> there for a minute. Um, I want to share with you an experience I had recently. Um, on the screen behind you, you'll see an illustration of equilibrium. You see two children perfectly balanced on a seesaw. Now, all it would take for one of those children to fall off and lose their balance uh, is for some unexpected uh, rock to fall on one end of the, the seesaw, and then the other child would go airborne. Uh, we unconsciously deal with equilibrium all day long, every day, as we adjust our posture and our body position to maintain our balance and our stability so that we manage to stand upright all day long. If something comes along to disturb that equilibrium, then if we don't make some adjustments, we're going to fall. I got reminded of this a few weeks ago when we were in Australia with, to visit some friends of ours. We went to a demonstration at a park, and uh, we, there were bleachers where we sat. And the bleachers in Australia are configured differently than the bleachers here. Here, when you want to exit your row, you walk out into the row, and then you step down, and you go down the steps. There, when you want to exit the row, you step down out of the row into the aisle. So I failed to notice this. And um, I wasn't really prepared to step out into nothingness. <laughs> so I lost my balance, and I staggered around a little bit, and I finally gained my balance back. And it was a little embarrassing, but it wasn't too bad. What was very embarrassing was when I did the same thing again <laughs> 30 minutes later. I still you know, didn't learn my lesson, forgot the step was there exited the row, flailed around all over the place, crashed into the bleachers on the other side, grabbed hold of a stranger <laughs> to try to, I'm serious, to try to get, get my balance. My cell phone goes flying through the air, and my safari hat comes down over my face, and I land on the ground. Totally humiliating. This equilibrium is very painful. <laughs> but you know the, pain, the big bruise that I got on my right shin was not nearly as painful as the bruise that came to my self-esteem <laughs> in the process of this. And my husband is just rolling, you know, he's supposed to be sympathetic. He's just rolling his eyes back in his head like, I can't believe this. So I'm even more humiliated. But it, I learned what links we'll go to to maintain our equilibrium and how we might even grab on to strangers to keep from falling. Because disequilibrium is painful when we fall. This is what the pain of suffering does to us. It throws us into disequilibrium. Something's just not right, and we feel off balance because we weren't expecting it. If we're not prepared, we'll fall on our face. So we have seen in First Peter, as we've studied this semester, over and over, we've seen that Peter is trying to prepare us for, with adequate internal resources so that we can maintain our equilibrium when suffering comes to us. Because suffering is sure to come 
to us as believers. There may be different degrees of suffering, different kinds of suffering. We may have different uh, pain thresholds. Everybody experiences pain at a different level, but there comes a point where you experience pain as pain in your suffering. We think of pain as something we want to avoid at every cost. But pain is not always a signal of a threat to life. Sometimes pain is a signal of an increase in life. And that's what Peter is trying to show us. For an example, a child has a growth spurt, and they have leg aches, and they have headaches, and they have stomach aches, and they hurt from growing so fast. Sometimes an athlete will uh, build up his muscles through training that hurts. Babies are born through excruciating pain for the mother. But these are good things. They're an increase in life. And so in 1 Peter 4, Peter wants us to realize that suffering actually signals an increase in life. And he addresses four areas where we need to prepare ourselves for the pain of suffering so that when it comes, we don't lose our equilibrium. We maintain our center um, of balance in Jesus Christ as we address the areas of mental, emotional, spiritual, and moral equilibrium and preparation. So first, let's look at mental preparation. We need to expand our minds to include new realities that we've not been aware of before. And this is painful because it involves disrupting our mental framework or rearranging it or uh, maybe even abandoning the way we've always thought. That's hard to do. And if we... If we don't make the adjustment, we will be thrown into disequilibrium because we're not, we can't maintain our balance. But Peter says, don't be surprised or caught off guard by the suffering that comes upon you as though some strange things were happening to you. In verse 12, he says that to us. But our minds want to hold on to wrong Ideas that have been instilled in us from our training, from our culture, from our education, maybe from our experiences. And so this morning I want us to look at three different mental beliefs, wrong beliefs, that we hold on to that cause us to lose our equilibrium. The first is karma. This is a Buddhist notion, but it also really every other religion in the world except for Christianity is founded on karma. You reap what you sow. Your current actions determine your future benefits. We think that we should get back what we put out. But Christianity is not founded on karma. Karma is the exact opposite to grace. Grace says that we do not reap what we sow. <clears throat> now, Paul does tell us in Galatians 6, verse 7, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. 
That sounds contrary to what I'm just saying. But in the context, what Paul is talking about is that if you act in such a way um, to please your own flesh, you'll get a quite different outcome than if you act in a way that pleases the Spirit. He's talking about in that passage that your actions do have consequences. But all of us know that we can be perfectly nice to someone and they turn right around and they're just so hateful to us and mean to us, we don't get back what we, what we sowed, do we? Uh, we also know that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Even when we get the consequences of our bad behavior, it's not nearly what we deserve for defying God. So the law of sowing and reaping is not what Christianity is based on. We don't get back what we put out. Grace ensures that we get back what God puts out, what Jesus Christ has secured for us, even though we don't deserve it. Now, if we believe in karma, that we get back what we put out, and we think we're, we're doing pretty good, we haven't messed up too bad this week, we're mostly obedient, maybe we made some sacrifice for God, maybe we shared the gospel with somebody, uh, we think suffering ought not to happen to us. Because we ought to reap what we're sowing. We ought to get something good back. God even owes us a bonus. You know, good measure pressed down running over. He owes that to us, we think. And so, we're surprised by that suffering that comes. In reality, living a godly life and sharing the gospel is often the cause for the suffering. It brings it on. And Peter says, don't be surprised by that. And Paul backs him up in Philippians 1.29 where he says, it has been granted to you, and the word granted means graced to you, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Suffering as a grace gift. Now that's a new thought that we need to embrace. If we believe in karma instead of grace, we're going to lose our equilibrium when suffering comes because we're expecting a good return for our behavior. A second wrong belief that we might be guilty of embracing is that suffering is punishment. When someone reacts negatively to our godly lifestyle or to our sharing the gospel with them, we think that we must have messed up somewhere along the line And that God is now upset with us. God is mad at us, and so he's going to punish us. But that thought is, is I get so disturbed when I start to think that way or when someone else says, well, I don't know, I guess I just must have really done, I really messed up, and God is really, you know, he's really upset with me because otherwise that person would have gotten saved or that person would have, you know, done something different. And that's not at all. we're, We're not... We're not paying attention to the gospel when we think that way. God is not mad at us. We know that his, God's wrath has been perfectly satisfied, infinitely, once for all, at the cross. God is not mad at you when you mess up. And the resurrection proves that God is satisfied with what Jesus did on our behalf. Peter reminds us, 
in this passage in verse 12 that our fiery ordeals come upon us for the testing of our faith. Suffering, even if it's suffering for doing something right, is designed to mold our character into Christ-likeness and to bring us to maturity. We need to come to a, to, we need to develop a settled mental sense of the necessity of pain. That God uses it, it is his tool to conform us to him and to create his image in us. And it's that image in us that validates our witness, that reveals God's glory to the world around us. So we're not to think it's strange when we suffer. It's not punishment. It's God's way of forming us to him. There's a third mental framework that will disturb our our uh, equilibrium, and that is isolationism. That's kind of a long word, but anyway, it's the best I could think of. Um, as children, we're taught, mind your own business, keep your hands to yourself, don't get too involved in those people's, don't nose into their business because, um, you know, you can get really messy. We're taught that it's our right to pursue our own goals and dreams and personal happiness and prosperity. We're taught that... Um, your actions just don't matter. They're just your actions, and it's not going to affect anybody else. It doesn't matter if it does, and I'm responsible only to myself. That's what we're taught. But we're forgetting, as believers, that we are soldiers in a life-and-death battle. Soldiers have to be mentally prepared for the fight. And one of the first things that they learn in boot camp is to be committed to one another, to be willing to sacrifice their own life so that their comrades in arms might escape death. An isolationist mindset in a soldier will cause suffering and maybe even annihilation of the whole unit. It is very important that they realize And they go in knowing that war is a fiery ordeal and that, and they're not surprised by what they find there. They're mentally prepared to sacrifice themselves for their fellow soldiers that are in their unit. They're mentally prepared to take on the enemy as a unit, to take enemy territory and hold it as a unit. And Peter reminds his readers, this fiery ordeal among you. You see, he's talking about the corporate suffering. They're all going through it and the corporate responsibility. If we act independently, it'll cause us to lose our equilibrium. We are soldiers called to fight as a unit. And what we do or fail to do does affect other people. We cannot live in isolation from one another. I heard a quote one time, a long time ago, and it stuck with me, and it's helped me to, mm, to navigate through some hard times. And it says this, whatever ends in self ends in death. Now, that's a filter as you're 
testing your motives and your attitudes and whatever. If what you're about to do or what you're thinking, if it ends with me, 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 it ends in death. We cannot live an isolationist mindset, no matter what our culture tells us. So what if I suffer momentary light affliction so that someone else can escape eternal suffering? So how do we prepare ourselves mentally to maintain our equilibrium? Peter tells us in that verse 12, expect suffering. Don't be surprised by it. Forewarned is forearmed. We need to identify and abandon the wrong beliefs that we hold on to so tightly. Beliefs that are throwing us into disequilibrium, throwing us off balance and bringing harm to others. Secondly, we need to be prepared emotionally for suffering. 1 Peter 4.13 says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Rejoicing in pain, to the same degree that you suffer, rejoice. Think of that seesaw. It should have equal weight. As as bad as your suffering, rejoice an equal amount. Um, That seems counterintuitive to rejoice in suffering. We may often experience other emotions than suffering, toxic emotions that preempt our ability to rejoice as we're commanded to do. One of those toxic emotions is dissatisfaction. Have you ever been dissatisfied with the way the Lord is orchestrating your life? (laughs) Um, It's a toxic emotion because it, it leads us into complaining, and all of us know what complaining does to our equilibrium. It, it just messes up our sense of reality. Jesus gives us an example as he was misunderstood and insulted and disrespected and plotted against and maligned and humiliated and deserted and finally uh, put to death in the most shameful way possible. All as part of the cost of bringing salvation to the undeserving. And he never complained. He never complained, not once. So if we are suffering at the hands of people that are opposed to God and to his sovereign rule, if we're suffering in any of those ways that Jesus suffered, how can we complain, I didn't sign up for this? Have you ever said that? I have. I didn't sign up for this. Oh, yes, we did. It's exactly what we signed up for. It's exactly what we signed up for. Dissatisfaction and complaining eclipse the fact that suffering is a privilege. It has been granted unto us not only for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted means grace gifted. Um, And dissatisfaction also causes us to lose our perspective on reality. 
and we say to ourselves, this is never going to end. There's, it's going to go on and on. We think it's <clears throat> going to last for the rest of our life. And it may, but it does have an end. We say it's never going to end. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it will. One day in the not-so-distant future, when the Lord comes back, and when his full glory is displayed and seen and acknowledged by everyone, every human being who's ever lived, and they acknowledge him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that day is going to be a day of rejoicing. And if we've suffered with him, we will also be glorified with him. So Peter says, to the degree that you suffer, rejoice. Equilibrium is restored when your joy equals your suffering, is in equal measure. Don't let your dissatisfaction with the way things are now rob you of the joy of looking ahead to what God is going to do and keeping the crowning day in mind. Dissatisfaction has a first cousin. It's called self-pity. A couple weeks ago, as I began to kind of buckle down to nail this lesson, I'd done some studying. I was going to bring it, trying to bring it all together. I had no idea that I was about to get a clinic. Have you ever had a clinic? A clinic on self-pity. Now, self-pity is not something that I have really struggled with much. I just don't go there. I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm, I don't know. I just don't. But I've been battling it for two weeks now. I had a great-grandmother whose theme song was, Poor Oh Me, I've got more <laughs> troubles than anybody. And she'd say that over and over, and she believed it. I mean, she was dead serious. And I remember sitting there and laughing at her and thinking, I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt that you've got more troubles than anybody. And I'll think, just get over it, you know. Well, I got a clinic that taught me, that has taught me in the last couple of weeks, how easy it is to... In- to engage in that self-indulgent insanity that my life is harder than anybody else's or sadder than anybody else's or worse than anybody else's. I was dissatisfied with how things were going in my life. You see, on Sunday, I entered my seventh decade, and I thought the entire world should be celebrating with me. And they didn't. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with suffering for Christ, but I'm just saying that was one thing, one part of, of the things that I was self-pitying about. Um, I mean, if you knew how full of self-pity I was, you would come up here and spank me because I was acting like a two-year-old. For two weeks, I've been moaning and groaning about different things that were happening. Self-pity. And I thought back to my great-grandmother, and I said, well, it does come back to you, doesn't it? (laughs) So, anyway, I may have a few hard things in my life, and I do, we all do, but I don't win the grand prize. You know, I haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood yet. So, how can I say, you know, I just can't take this, it's just too hard. Uh, My life's harder than anybody else sounds, just like Cain. My punishment is too great to bear. You know, we just, we get, we get there easily on some days. And it throws us off balance and robs us of our joy. So how do we prepare ourselves to maintain our emotional equilibrium in suffering? P- 
Peter says to us, embrace it joyfully. Suffering is preparing glory for you. Because one day, his glory will be revealed. And your life will make sense then in a way that it never has before. And you'll see you had no cause for dissatisfaction or self-pity. So we've seen the need for mental preparation and emotional preparation. Now let's look at spiritual preparation. The overall direction of our life is um, determined by the choices that we make um, in response to various things that motivate us, whether it is pleasing another person or maybe it's a circumstance that, it's co- that we think is causing us to act a certain way or there's stresses, longings that we have, uh, self-protection, there are lots of things can motivate us. And when we are suffering, those wrong motivators have an easier inroad into our life. They get a toehold, and they begin to determine our actions. We allow them to determine our actions. So I want us to look at two improper motivators. The first of, of them is guilt. Guilt is the distress that you feel when you've done something wrong that brought harm to another person. Or maybe... Maybe you failed to do something you should have done. Um, so when we're suffering, we are, we're more um, vulnerable to engaging in wrong actions. Peter says to us, don't, don't become a murderer or a thief or an a evildoer or a meddler. You know, don't, don't engage in those lawless things just because you're suffering. But we do sometimes get into the, the wrong actions and the guilt that comes with it. Now, true guilt is not a bad thing. We live in a culture that says, oh, you just shouldn't make any child ever feel guilty. That's just bad. No, sometimes we need to feel guilty because we have done something wrong. If I never feel guilt, I'm a psychopath who doesn't care if they hurt somebody else. The guilt is a God-given alarm that goes off in us that protects our relationships with one another and with him. Um, what it, so true guilt is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a God-given uh, alarm. What is bad is taking on false guilt. Have you ever done this? You're tempted to do something and you start feeling guilty. Well, the temptation is not the sin. It's when you start nurturing that temptation and planning how you're going to carry it out that you get into uh, sin. But the temptation itself is not sin. And if you feel guilty for being tempted, just remember Jesus was tempted in all things like we are. So temptation is not sin. Or we think we haven't done enough to help somebody else. I just wish somebody would stand up and define enough. What is enough? Do you know you can always do more than you did? So get over it. You know, it, what you didn't do, God prompted somebody else to do. You know, you're, you're not essential to the, the, the survival of the other person in that, you know, you, because you didn't, you only took one meal. You know, there's just some guilt we need to get rid of. <laughs> you know, they're not going to starve to death. God's going to take care of them. But even worse than taking on false guilt 
is refusing to resolve the true guilt. God has made a way to resolve our true guilt through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our confession and repentance and faith in the gospel. If we refuse to take that provision that God has, all we have left is guilt to motivate us. Unresolved guilt is going to throw you into disequilibrium, and it'll make you, you'll make choices that you never meant to make because you're motivated, motivated by guilt instead of being motivated by God. Wherever guilt is, there's another thing that follows right away, and that is shame. Because when our failure or our sin has been exposed, or we think it might be exposed, or it's a possibility somebody's going to find out about this, then we, we feel embarrassment. I'm so embarrassed, or we think I'm so unworthy of any honor or any love or any position or anything. I'm just unworthy. Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Shame is a common reaction among Christians. Because in our culture, let's just take, for example, um, getting fired from your job or being put in prison or being rejected by your friends or your spouse. Those things carry a certain amount of shame attached to them. Maybe less now than it used to, but anyway, there's shame attached. If those things happen to us because of our gospel witness or because of our lifestyle as a Christian, if those things happen to us for those reasons, we can still take on that shame of feeling, you know, somebody's lost their job because their boss hates their Christian convictions that have been demonstrated in the workplace. And you, te- you can take on that shame. Peter says, don't be ashamed, but in that name glorify God. If we take on shame and we wear it, whether it's real shame for something we really did or something that is put on us by society, um, that shame can paralyze us and control us and cause us to do things like hide and blame shift and denial. We can go into denial. We can go into self-condemnation and even self-harm. We don't have to wear that shame. What we have to do with that shame is to believe the gospel that Jesus died not only to deal with our guilt, but also with our shame and begin to glorify God in the name of Jesus. So how do we prepare ourselves to maintain our spiritual equilibrium in the midst of suffering? How do we deal with the, the guilt and the shame? Peter says, entrust yourselves to your faithful creator. He actually encourages us twice in this passage. In verse 14, he says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We need to realize that in our suffering, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us at all times, but when we are suffering, 
we have a sense of his presence enveloping us and resting on us and empowering us and strengthening us to bear up victoriously in the situation and to assure us of God's love for us in the suffering. You've seen people who suffer and you look at their faces, Christians, and you look at their faces and you see a glow. You see the spirit of glory and of God resting on them. And then in verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. To entrust means to turn over all of the responsibility to your faithful creator, to let the entire direction of your life be determined, not by your guilt and your shame, but by the spirit of God who rests on you. If you long for spiritual stability in the midst of your suffering, let these verses encourage you to entrust yourself rather than allowing that guilt and shame to take over and run your life. One final preparation for keeping our equilibrium in suffering is moral preparation. Again, in verse 19, Peter says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Doing what is right. Suffering presents to us some moral challenges, doesn't it? Two main things that I want to look at. One is an action, the other is an inaction. And both of these are dysfunctional responses to the suffering that we might face. They won't get us where we think they're going to take us. The first is revenge. And we all know this one. Somebody hurts your feelings or calls you a name or reviles you in some way or they do something to hurt you. Your first gut reaction is to retaliate, to get back at them, make them pay, punish them. And we're not satisfied with an eye for an eye, are we? We want to do worse to them than they did to us so they realize the gravity of of having offended us. And we want to um, hurt them so much more than they hurt us. But the problem with taking revenge is that it belongs to God, not us. Um, There's one lawmaker and judge. James tells us this. One lawmaker and judge, and I'm not it. I don't get to make the rules, and I don't get to uh, enforce the uh, meet out the justice when somebody breaks my rules. And even if they deserved it, I don't know the best way to punish them. I don't even know if they deserved it. Maybe what they did was inadvertent or or due to misunderstanding. They don't even need to be punished. All those things I don't know. But if I think I'm the lawmaker and judge, I think I have the right to straighten them out in whatever way I think is necessary. Another thing that's a problem with taking revenge is that it really doesn't make you feel any better. (laughs) It just ties you up, puts you in prison, Uh, traps you into dwelling on the situation and you relive it and relive it and relive it and think of what you could do or should do or ought to do or can do or might do and you end up it's bigger and worse in your mind than it ever was to begin with and besides that if you do take your revenge 
and you do to them, you know, like worse than they did to you, then they're going to look at that and go, man, I didn't deserve that. Okay, I'm going to do something worse back. And you've got this big spiral, uh, downward spiral that happens. So planning and executing (laughs) revenge, you don't even really have to do it. You just have to think about it and plan it and go over it in your mind. Either, either way, it's going to throw you into disequilibrium. It'll keep you from doing what is right. You know, if we don't opt to take revenge, we might have the polar opposite response, and that is equally dysfunctional, the response of despair. Um, <clears throat> despair is when you don't do anything at all. You know, revenge, you're taking extreme action. In, in despair, you just don't take any action at all. You just fold up into yourself. You think, this cannot and will not ever get any better. And so you just withdraw into your little pitiful self and just quit life. And if you continue to wallow in that, you'll end up in a place where you can't function in any area of life. You were unable to do anything on any front. Now, we've all faced some seemingly hopeless situations. Um, After I came to the Lord, my husband was seven years in his continuing rebellion against God. And I thought it was never going to end, you know. And I thought, there's no way. This this guy's hopeless. Um, But, you know, that was a, a... and I, I was tempted at times just to say, mm, okay, I don't care. Just do what you're going to do, you know. I'll just do the best I can and go on. But God says, entrust yourself to me and do what's right. Withdrawing into yourself and allowing that despair to take over is not a good choice. And action is never a good choice. God says, shift that responsibility over onto me, entrust yourself to me, and you do what's right. Sometimes we know the right thing to do, but we won't do it because we're scared to. Or we're um, too lazy to do it. Or we're just going to put it off a little while, procrastinating it, the action. But we need to trust God and do the right thing. Do the right thing. That comes to me a lot of times. It's, it's been repeated in, in First Peter. Do what's right. Do what's right. Do what's right. Suppose you don't know what to do. How do you handle that? And there are times when we really don't know what the next step is when we're faced with suffering. We have a saying at our house. It's pray and call your best shot. And by that, what we mean is, when we say that, is to pray And head out in the direction that seems right to you and trust God that he will stop you if you're headed in the wrong direction. He will. I've seen it happen over and over. Sometimes the right thing to do is just to be still. Don't confuse that with, with inaction. Being still is an action we take, an energy we expend to stay put long enough to hear what God has to say about something. And sometimes in that stillness, the Lord will give you a clear answer to your questions. So how do we prepare ourselves to maintain our moral equilibrium in suffering? Peter says, 
engage in doing what's right. So to sum up the things that we've said this morning, suffering is sure to come to us as believers. We know it will. God's promised it as a grace gift. Preparing ourselves for that suffering is, um, well, it's a form of suffering all its own, isn't it? Our fallen thinking, our toxic emotions, our improper motivations, our dysfunctional behavior. These are things that we resort to in suffering sometimes, and it will throw us into a state of disequilibrium. All of these things must be redeemed and transformed by our faithful creator so that our equilibrium is restored and his glory is seen. God is using our present sufferings to do just that, to redeem and to transform and to restore every aspect of our being. It's painful business when the spirit of glory and of God pulls us beyond our current limited, circumscribed concept grasp on reality and moves us from the familiar, the ways that we've always thought and believed and felt and the things we've always been motivated by, the ways we've always responded that are ingrained into us. When the spirit of glory pulls us beyond that and moves us from that familiar into an infinitely larger and, quite frankly, more frightening world than the one we now inhabit. We hear him call out to us as he wants to restore our equilibrium. And he says to us, expect suffering. Embrace it joyfully. Entrust yourself to me. Engage in doing what's right. We experience pain as we allow God to, uh, or our present understanding of God and our present understanding of his will, to be challenged by God's voice as he speaks to us through his word and by his spirit all day long every day. But if in the midst of our suffering, if we desire an unshakable equilibrium, if we desire to be anchored, we must be prepared, we must decide to prepare ourselves for, to make those moment-by-moment choices to embrace God's call because he is carving out a space in us for himself and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've given us ways to prepare for suffering. And we thank you that um, you are about the business of carving out space in us for yourself. More and more territory uh, is claimed by you as we yield to you and trust your Holy Spirit and trust ourselves to our faithful creator. We thank you, Lord, for all that you teach us in your word. We pray for grace to move forward. 
In Jesus' name, amen.